out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Craig Walker, a member of Power of Dreams, as well as a very long um, solo career as well. So this is the interview, and just a word up, he has, well, they have got a new album that has come out this year, The Power of Dreams, that is. And as I said, um, he's also done an awful lot of single, um, solo albums. So um, anyway, you're going to find out all about that within this interview. So look, after, I was going to say several minutes of casual chat, we spoke for an hour and a half, and then we got down to the interview. So there you go, that's, that's showbiz for you. So um, yes. Then we got to that point where I was saying, what was your musical moment in life that triggered everything? Mine was David Bowie. Craig, what was that moment that turned your life inside out and shaped the person you became? Over to you now. Jam, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the early jam, before the Smiths. The Smiths were, the, were my, band, my band, definitely. But before them, the jam. Uh, I bought my first record, uh, my first vinyl, first album I ever bought was Sound Effects. Uh, in 1980, when I was nine, in Northampton of all places, because I was visiting my aunt, uh, Teresa, who lived there. And her son had a massive record collection. He was like 10 years older than me. Um, and he played me the jam, and I just fell in love with him straight away. And I went out and bought Sound Effects, which had just come out. Uh, but that, that, that was really it. And from the jam, the jam led me into kind of the whole ska thing and right. you know, specials, madness. I was probably more into madness than the specials because I was younger. Uh, and but later on, the specials were, were a big band. Uh, yes, but, well, baggy baggy trousers was a hard one not to love when you're quite a young age. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. a classic. And, and were you? And were you? Did you have a musical house? You know, was it quite a musical household? There was a lot of music played in it for sure. My like my my mum my mum was a big Motown fan, you know, and uh, listened to Motown loads and loads and, and all the kind of not only Motown but uh, Phil Spector stuff. Like she was really into that, um, and also people like Cliff Richard. <laughs> she was a big fan of Cliff. I think John Lennon actually has always said was a big influence on on the Beatles, um, but. Yeah, the, the, it was. It, my dad was a big Frank Sinatra and crooners, and he was into uh, what's that guy? Golden Silence is Golden. Um, Frankie Valley. Right, right. I was and and weird, weird kind of albums. It's probably the same for you. Like my parents had these weird kind of albums that were, you know, like uh, I remember like the disco stuff. You know, like the. What was that album? It was a really odd one where um, uh, Do the Hustle. Do you remember there was an yes, album? Yes, Do the Hustle. So I, it was a weird combination of stuff. Uh, but then my brother was five years older, but I was telling you earlier, and, and he had great taste in music. And, you know, from when he was 15, I was 10, and he was into the whole new romantic thing and Japan, bands like Japan and Joy Division and the whole Factory Records. I got introduced to Factory very early on. Um, through him and uh so yeah i was i was lucky in that sense but there was no musicians you know there was i didn't know any musicians none of my none of my extended family i think one of my my uncles was married to a woman who was a singer but my grandfather actually was on my mum's side 
he was the musician in the family. He played he played in jazz court, uh, jazz bands, and, and and apparently could just pick up a tune straight away. And he was like very very musical. Um, didn't get to know him that well though, uh, unfortunately, because he he died quite young. Um, so yeah, no, it was it was I'd say biggest influence was my brother. Yes, and then Ray. I was going to say, what about other sort of bands around? Did, were you bought? Was it Berlin? Uh, Berlin? Was it Dublin that you were um, brought up? So yeah. were people like Thin Lizzy, you know, in your orbit at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he. I remember the night Phil Lynn had died. You know, it was like it was big, big, big news in Ireland. Um, my brother was big into them. I really liked the Live Dangerous album. Actually, I, I, I was a big fan of that. Uh, and I liked, I liked, I, I did like his songwriting. I remember like song Sarah that he did for his kid. I was really into, um, but I found some of it a bit cheesy. Now I still kind of, I liked Tin Lizzy, but there's, there was a, it was a bit kind of, uh, he was obviously a fan of the kind of fifties rock and roll, which yes. I, really, I had a real problem with that as a kid, you know, cause I loved the Beatles. And they always referenced, you know, like um, Bill Haley and the Comets. And, and I, I always found that stuff, I don't know, but at the time I, I thought it was really cheesy, you know, this rock around the clock. And, 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 and Thin Lizzy had that going on, you know, it was it like Johnny Fox meets the, or the boys are back in town. I had this courageousness and uh, cartoon kind of thing, which was very 50s, um, which wasn't my cup of tea. But no doubt in his ability as a songwriter, for sure. You know, he, he wrote some really, really great songs and uh, and they were a great band. You two were probably more of an influence, to be honest, as a kid. Right. Um, you know, 1979, 1980, they, they were, you know, they were starting to, it was starting to work for them. They were all over Irish TV and UTV when I was a kid. And um, so they, they, they would have been more of an influence. But for me, you know, the mid '80s were really great in Ireland because there was a very, very healthy local scene. There were bands like a House. Um, who else was there? Um, what are the Woodbees? Yeah, 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 yeah. They were they were around the same time as as, as Power Dreams as well. They signed to uh, was it Rough Trade? I think they did, didn't they? They or no? Was it Satanta? No. Would be. I can't quite I remember. remember. I remember. I remember they did various John Peel sessions. Who? Yeah, he loved them. Yeah, he was a I, fan. He was a big uh, fan. They were kind of cranberries before the cranberries, in in a sense. You know, they they kind of. I remember hearing the cranberries for the first time, thinking that nah, would be so much better. You know, and uh, and in fact, the cranberries probably wouldn't have been the band that they were if it hadn't been for the single. Stephen Street, who I mentioned earlier, was talking about. He he produced the first record. And he said they were on the verge, they were on the, like, literally about to be dropped by Ireland. And the phone call came from America that uh, 120 minutes um, on MTV in America had picked up on, on Linger and, and everything changed for them. So, yeah, they, but thinking back, Tim Lizzie and who else around that time? I like Stiff Little Fingers, actually. I was a fan of them. Yes. And um, did Bob Geldof come into your orbit at all? Oh. Not really. Um, I liked I, I liked the singles. I like the like don't um, don't like Mondays is is a, is a brilliant song. Um, he, he did and Live Aid really. I mean, I, I, the Boontown Rats kind of didn't really. They were just a bit before my time. Yes. My brother, my brother wasn't really a big fan of theirs, so I was kind of 
he was buying the records or whatever he was into i was into until i got to the you know till i started buying myself and uh and the jam was the beginning of that so, yes so yeah. were you kind of aware because i know there was the sort of we had that punk period of between 70 76 to sort of i suppose 78 where things were good and 79 things weren't getting so great but then you had post-punk with you know the gang of four and the nightingales and marky smith and the fall and uh I suppose public image limited but then you know indie pop started to surface a bit you know with people like simple minds you two julian cope but i still think it was 83 when the smiths hit that suddenly there was this kind of like okay that's happening i mean obviously before then we did have that new romantic world with like you mentioned japan's soft cell and then that early work of yeah, Duran Duran and Spandau Bally started to appear. So I, I kind of found the music scene really splintered between what was in the charts with that Trevor Horn production and then what was kind of being played on John Peel. It was just like there was two totally different worlds, wasn't there? Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, and I think the Smiths were like such a huge band for me. You know, I was I was 12 when the first, was it 83 the first album it was? Um, so I was 12 when I first heard the Smiths. My brother, was, my brother had the first single um which was hand and glove i think and yeah he had everything he 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 introduced me to the first album actually i have to i have to get a, off my cap to him for that uh, and i remember hearing it and thinking oh, this is just the best you know and the b-sides were brilliant and everything they put out was brilliant and uh, and they were they were my beagles I, I i you know they were they were the band that i was a teeny bopper in love with the band and I was going out and buying the records as they were released and uh and and yeah but they they changed a lot didn't they it, it suddenly went from it's, it seemed like after the smiths that there was this whole you know bands like echo and the bunnymen were, were were breaking as well and 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 they were getting into the real charts suddenly. And, uh, yes, well, it was, I mean, I suppose when you look at the sales figures now, you're probably quite boggled that the indie charts probably, you know, they wouldn't have even, well, they might've got crept into the top 20. And um, obviously Morrissey was in his book, as he often says, you know, if only they, you know, promoted us a bit more, we could have been major players. But, but then they went for an independent label. So, you know, you can't really explain. But also the interesting thing with that period, and remember Sonic Youth a bit later, was that being in an independent label was so important. And if anybody ever went to a major, it was a bit like, you know, some biblical Judas, really, wasn't it? You, you have sold out. I mean, young people would have no idea what you're talking about. But I remember, I remember that kind of thing about the importance of being on that particular record label. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, we 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 did our pair of jeans did our first single with uh, Satanta Records, which was an indie, and then um, we got singles of the week and in the, in, the, in the English newspaper in the magazines, and then suddenly we had all the labels coming coming to to Ireland, and I was getting you know I was getting fly, I was still in school and I was getting flown over with our manager was taking me over to to meet with all kinds of people and. You know, I remember Jeff Travers and had a meeting with Polygram, who we actually ended up signing to uh, because The Cure were on there and I was a big Cure fan. And also The Jam, <laughs> The Jam, I want, you know, they had the red label. Uh, um, but I remember coming out of a, a meeting with Polydor and Hammersmith and this guy sitting on the steps and he said, um, he said, oh, hi, Craig. And he was like, I said, how do you even know me? And uh, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm Jeff Travers and I'd like to sign you to Rough Trade. And I wanted, I need half an hour of your time to, to convince you of why. And, uh, and I think, I think because Morrissey, 
That would have been 89. I think Morrissey hated Jeff Travers by that point. Of course yes, he did. He did, frankly, Mr. Shankly. Of course, yeah. Um, but I think he'd been quite, yeah. And then he, I think he'd slated him and stuff because he, he didn't, they were, they were, Morrissey was on AMI at that point, wasn't he? So I was definitely, like, if, if the Smiths were still on the label then, I would have signed without a doubt. But I was racked with absolute guilt signing to a major label. You know, it, it felt, I felt like I'd betrayed the indie, you know, the indie world. Um, and looking back, we probably should have, we should have signed a rough trade. Um, it would have been probably the best move because uh, we suddenly went from, you know, releasing your first single EP and then you sign to a major label and then suddenly there's just pressure. Like it comes out of nowhere. You're suddenly like, you know, you, you're involved in board meetings and this thing that you've, 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 you've spent all of this time in your bedroom working on and building and, 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 and it's, you know, it's your thing to suddenly uh, having, you know, board meetings with, with people you know, know absolutely nothing in common with. Yeah. Uh, but, but in fairness, Polydor, there were some good people at Polydor and they were genuine music fans, you know, and that that's, that's kind of why we went there. Like, Jane Wilkes, our press officer, was was just a music fanatic, you know, and um, and 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 you feel that there were some good people in the major labels back then. I don't know, I don't know how it is today. It's probably, you know, from, from the experience I've got, it's um, it's very much led by 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 kind of accountants and and. and you know. But it was kind of an interesting time because because I haven't spoken to quite a few people, especially record label people in that eighties who were running, you know, the the. The collapse of rough trade and that business kind of devastated so many companies and individuals, didn't it? So I'm amazed that he was still saying, "No, I'm signing you." Yeah, yeah. I mean, he. I think he. Yeah. I don't know. Who, I don't even know who rough trade had at that point. I think James were no longer with them. Or James was way back, wasn't it? That was James. Did James end up on Factory, or were they on Factory first? Um, I can't. I think did they go to Fontana? They went to Fontana. That's right. Yeah, they left. They left Rough Trade. Um, I don't, I don't yeah, it was, what happened to Rough Trade when they their kind of the business went. You know, I mean, some people I've spoke to, you know, have absolute horror stories when they went there and saw the warehouse and saw the accountant and and just yeah. thinking, oh my god, you know. And then people having all their stock that you know they they couldn't get back, and and so it was amazing. Jeff was still you know plugging away with it. Yeah, yeah. I was I was kind of surprised. Uh, and I think that's probably why we didn't, because I think at that point, Rough Trade was looking pretty uh, shambolic, shall we say? You know, it didn't it didn't seem to have its shit together at all. And uh, were you ever were, were you ever tempted with Creation Records? Because obviously they were. Yeah, I mean, I I, I know Alan. I've known Alan for years. Um, I again, I think he just. I don't think he ever came in. He he showed some interest. And um, I don't know whether you've ever spoken to Alan, but Alan's quite a unique kind of guy. Yes, I have. He's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's pretty... He's, you know, there's only one Alan McGee. Um, and he, we ended up supporting House of Love. Our first major... First real tour of the UK was supporting House of Love. The second tour. The first one was with Wire, uh, which was pretty amazing. You know, they just released the album with uh, Eardrum, Buzz Buzz, and, and they were kind of... Doing, doing really well at that point. And that was the first time we ever did a tour. And we played, I remember we played in Edinburgh. Um, we did about seven or eight dates on, on a UK tour. 
and we hadn't even done our album at this point. Um, and it was, you know, that was a real eye opener for us. But then, but then we then we toured with the House of Love, who Alan was managing, and um, and we did quite a lot of touring with them. So we got to know Alan quite well then. And it was kind of like, God, I wish we'd Simon Allen, you know, because he was a mate and he was so supportive of his bands. And I think the best thing about Alan is he lets artists just get on with it. You know, he doesn't he doesn't interfere. I've done I've worked with Alan since in, in 20, 20, 2013, I released an album under the name Mineral on Alan's new label at the time called 359 Music, which went through Cherry Red. Um, and it was great to work with him eventually. You know, we've been friends for years and uh, that was our first opportunity. And what I really liked about him was that he he would, you know, he's totally spontaneous. Like he'll, he'll, you know, he doesn't try to change anything, but he'll say, you need to do that. And you do it and it's usually right, you know. So I, yeah. like, I like his attitude and, you know, he's still quite punk rock and doesn't interfere with the artist. He lets them get on with it. <clears throat> and I think... For a lot of people, that was just the, the right person, you know. Bands like the House of Love, for instance, I think. And I think they had My Bloody Valentine at that stage as well, who were... Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic band, amazing band. Who, um, who were recording Loveless, and that was probably quite an epic saga, really. It was, yeah, nearly bankrupt the label as well, didn't it? I think it was, you know, as Alan said, it was a quarter of a million album, you know, but, the, you know, he, he'd been spending 10 grand an album. And, uh, you know, most of the bands, on, like even the House of Love's first album was recorded in downtime in Greenhouse because uh, it just wasn't the money, you know, like, um, so, but Kevin, Kevin went bananas, didn't he, with the, uh, it's a masterpiece. So I think yes. it's probably, it's not a waste of money at all, is it? I mean, it's still today, it's still held up. as. as a it is. I think, I think he still wants to tinker with it, which is probably, you know, like, just leave it. Just, it's fine. Leave it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you just going back slightly, you know, so you jumped from sort of the 80s to sort of the, the mid 80s. I mean, you, you must have musically started to accelerate from being a, a punter to playing guitar to writing songs quite quickly. Yeah, I well, I I I, I always wanted to. I think from the age of ten, I, I really wanted. I was actually playing recorder in school, the, the dreaded recorder, which a lot of musicians start on. You know, it's that awful. Yes, we remember that, and the town, and the town, triangle, triangle. Uh, so I knew from then that I, I had some kind of musical abilities. My my teacher was saying, you you know, you're picking this up really quickly and easily, um, and I love music, and then. I'd never really any aspirations to write songs until uh, I did classical music for three years. That was the only way my parents would get me a guitar when I was 10. I said, we'll get you a guitar, but you're going to have to get lessons. So I did three three years of guitar, of classic, classical guitar lessons um, up to the age of 13. And then that Christmas that year, I got my first electric guitar. And then I started writing songs immediately. As soon as I had an electric guitar, I could write. And uh, and I and I stopped doing classical classical guitar immediately and just just started writing terrible songs, um, but that was always the, the thing for me. Always like was I as soon as I could play the guitar, as soon as I since I got the electric guitar and I knew I could write songs, that was it. That's all I wanted to do. Uh, it was a way to express myself, and you know, it was just like you know the most amazing. I, I discovered the most amazing thing that just was from somewhere else you know yes uh, 
and uh, and 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 it's and it's still like that today. I'm still I still love, I still love songwriting. You know, it's still for me the main motivation and and the thing that I love to do the most. Um, and I and I really enjoy writing with other people these days as well. You know, for I work with a lot of like younger younger artists here in Berlin, and um, and that's great. You know, it's great to 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 get that enthusiasm from them as well. You know, so well yeah, from the from the get go, I was writing, and then from I think we, me and Keith were, me and Keith shared, my, my brother, we shared a, we shared a bedroom in Dublin and uh, our parents' place. And so I got, I got the electric guitar and he got drum, he got a, he got a small drum kit at the same time, same year, the same Christmas. So we had an electric guitar and a drum kit in our bedroom. And that's really where, <coughs> that was really the beginning of everything for both of us, you know? And uh, My God, your parents must have loved the sound of, they were so nice you know my mum was so when I look back now as an adult and you know with kids of my own and I just think fucking hell how did she put up with it she was brilliant she never you know my mum never ever said don't do it Uh, not once never said get a proper job or you know this isn't this is not leading anywhere she was totally supportive Uh, I was really blessed uh, because she loved music and I think she knew that we loved it and she could see that it was keeping us out of trouble probably as well. You know, we weren't, we were, you know, when, when people were going out, um, you know, when we were like 15, 15, 16, Saturday night, we were, Friday, Saturday night, we were in rehearsing most weeks, you know, because that was the time we could get to use. Um, friend of, we'd rehearse in a friend's garage. Um, so it kept us out of trouble. Uh, and I think she could see that. But yeah, what an angel! I mean, yes, well, God, that is that is quite a lovely break. When you got your first EP together, which is is it um, a little piece of God? Yeah. Were you? Um, what was your feelings when when you were sort of both recording it and when you sort of heard the playback? Well, it was produced by John O'Neill from the Undertones, the man who wrote Teenage Kicks, you know. And we went to um, we 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 did the with the record with Satanta Records uh, and Keep Keep. God bless him. Somehow managed to get John O'Neill to produce it, and we did it in Angel Studios in Islington. Uh, and the engineer had just finished. I oh know this that was 1989. So the guy, the engineer, had had been the assistant. Um, the Four Smiths album had been originally recorded in that studio. It was the the one that what the one that didn't get released. It was the John Porter version. John Porter, my God, Hughes. Gone yeah. all amazing things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he, <clears throat> the assistant, so I was like, I mean, I was I was 17. It was just mind blown. I was in London. I was in a studio, a proper studio for the first time. And um, and it was amazing. John O'Neill, you know, I I loved the undertones. You know, they were, they were heroes of mine as well. Um, and he just, he never, you know, he was, he was the best producer I could have ever had at that time because he didn't say, this is no good or, you know, you should do it this way. It was all positive. It was all like, that's really good. Do what you're doing, it's great. Um, and I remember finishing it and not thinking about it until we got sent the, the vinyl. And then it was like, wow, this is amazing, you know, amazing feeling. Uh, best, I mean, that, that, for me, that's, that's the best moment for a band. Or uh, as an artist, it's, it's the very beginning. It's just magic. And even, yes. even, even the lead up to that, you know the, the the gigs that we did, you know, up and down the country and in in Ireland, and you know going going through 
going up to Belfast in like 1987 as like kids to play in, in Mandela Hall in Belfast and, you know, having to go through the border where it's, you know, pretty, pretty heavy at that time. Uh, so th those, those are the great days, really. I think my, my, for, for most bands, the, the lead up to where you, you finally get your first releases retrospect the best days yes absolutely and just on the john porter front did he was he part of that recording process not no his assistant the guy that the guy <coughs> nick, his name was nick eight was it nick nick Isle? i can't remember his name he, he this guy had had been the assistant engineer who produced the four smiths album by the way was it john porter no it was uh, john porter the first the very first one he's he's the producer Right, but there wasn't. There was a version before. There wasn't. Wasn't. Then they re-record the album. They did it twice. Well, I Troy, did. Was it Troy? Somebody did oh, a version. You're right. Troy was part of that from the Morrissey book. I remember Troy, possibly. But John Porter's definitely the man who's on the first album. Yeah, he he ended up producing the first record, but the studio had been where the Smiths had recorded the first album, and also the engineer had worked on the album. A guy called Nick. Can't remember his name. I found that on the Smiths album. So that that to me was just fucking amazing. I you know my my favorite band. This was like you know I, I had a direct line to the Smiths. Yes, and, um, and that blew my mind. You know, and, uh, and then again when I met Jeff Travers because you know back in those days I you know I knew all about I knew I knew who was making the tea on the records as we all did. You know because you know you get your one album one album a month. And you knew everything about, you know, who, who the assistant engineer was, all of it. Um, photographer. Photographer. Absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. no, you had, to, you had to take it. When you came to do your second, uh, your first real album, you worked with a, with the, this was with Ray from the prog rock band Gentle Giant, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Who I didn't know, of course, because uh, prog was way before my time and what, it wasn't the kind of music I was into. Um, as a as a young indie kid, um, but he was lovely, you know. I, I don't think it's funny. Again, going back to the Stephen Street thing, where he was talking about, you know, back in the in back in the day, where there was no such thing as pre meetings before you'd work with somebody, you know, that that didn't exist. I think that that that's that's something that that came around in the mid nineties and the and with the with the introduction of the internet, where you know we suddenly start meeting people to decide whether you'd work with them. But, you know, met him on the day that we started the album and uh, uh, Ray Shulman, because I was a, I was a fan of, I was really into the Ian McCulloch for solo record, Candle Land, which he just finished. Um, and also he had also done the, the Sugar Cubes first album. Right. Where, and, I, and I love that record as well. Um, and he was the right guy. He was, he was, he was really great. He was, He'd been in a band with two of his brothers were in Gentle Giant, so he he understood that dynamic. Uh, and he was just really sympathetic to what we were doing. You know, again, he just he didn't he didn't try to tell me what to do. He just said, I want to capture the band as a live band. Uh, you're gonna play here, the drummer's here, and, and the bass player's here, and you're all gonna look at each other. So we were all pretty we were behind screens, but it was it was done in a studio called Master Rock in um, in Kilbourne, which is sadly no longer there, like like most most studios. And uh, it had a big live room, and he set it up basically like a gig. And um, I mean, I ordered the stuff later, but 
a lot of it was just really live and 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 ray was 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 brilliant at that my best moments in music thinking about talking about the john, john o'neill thing as well was the day that we uh ray shulman i went around to ray shulman's apartment in london or his, his, his house in london and he played us the finished album the mastered mixed finished that was easily that was that was an amazing moment you know to to suddenly hear you know 14 of your songs properly produced and you know sounding great and yeah that was that was magic magical moment my god you must have felt like you were on a sort of a, a mission to mars or something at that stage in your life it was amazing i mean i was 18 you know and uh it, it kind of all happened really quickly as well like i mean there was a build-up to not that much of a build-up. I mean, we we probably gigged for about two years, um, and and it just it just kind of just happened. You know, the single came out, the independent single. We got these singles of the week, and then suddenly there was a lot of lot of interest in the band, and um, and it was a it was a roller coaster ride, yeah, for sure. And uh, then you went and toured with the Mission, who had been massive yeah. in the eighties. What was that tour like? Was Andy Cousins playing bass at that stage? No, Craig was still Craig. Uh, what's the guy's name? Craig. Oh, Craig Adams, I think, is his name. He's right. He's played. He plays with like Spirit Destiny and, and loads of other bands. Uh, but he 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 was in the band at that point, um, and they were great. I mean, we 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 toured all over Europe with them. I think we did like three months tour tour, uh, and they were like ten, probably more than ten years older than us. They were hardened uh road hogs and um and they were lovely you know they were they were lead they're from leeds they were great guys um and they basically we were kids i think they just took a shine to us and they were like our dressing room is open to you guys whenever you want you know so they'd be on stage and we'd be drinking their beer <laughs> and they didn't they never complained but but they were great to, it was great to watch super professional band you know all over Europe, they were playing to like five thousand, between five and ten thousand people every single night, and um, all, you know, Spain, Italy, Germany played Berlin, um, played in places like Prague, and this was nineteen ninety, so the wall was had just come down in a lot of places like that that we were playing. Yes, we were playing a, a, an ice rink in in uh, it was in Prague, I think, and. It was like it must have. They must have made the ticket prices must have been really cheap or something because it was entire families. You know, you'd have like seven, like the mom, the dad, the grandparents, and all the kids and all the, the grandchildren, and um, and it was like they were obviously going to see a rock gig for the first time. You know, and the whole family were there, uh, but it was great. I, I loved. I loved touring with the mission. It was. It was easily one of the best tours I've ever done. It's interesting because I remember you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the, the Friday night tube, wasn't it? You know, all the way from, was it, was it Newcastle? And I remember yeah. all the audience, you know, you just have all these bands and they all look really bored. And then the only time I saw them go crazy was once with the Smiths and once with the Mission, where they were absolutely, if you ever see that clip of the Mission on the tube, you'll just go, oh yeah, but mostly they're just sitting there just looking like, oh, another great band, I can't be bothered, you know, shall we go? You know, they probably got a bit blasé, but I just remember the Mission fans were really passionate. So you must have had an amazing sort of reception every night. We did, and we picked up, you know, they were they were very nice to us, the Mission fans. Some of, still, well, some, some of them are still following us today, quite a few. 
and, and, and quite a few of them are coming over from for, for the for the shows and they'll be there in London for sure. But there's there's quite a few of them coming over to to Ireland um for the tour. Yeah, they were great. They were they were really quite open people, you know. They, they had this they, from the outside it looked like the mission were kind of moody kind of goths. Uh, but that wasn't the case at all. They were super super nice and their fans were super I have to say, I've done an interview with Wayne and he was so such a nice bloke. And actually, interestingly enough, slight aside, and we were talking about cats, I remember sort of we were having a problem with our cats and having to take them to the vet. And I sort of had to sort of say to Wayne, look, I'm really sorry, I'm, I've got to go to the vets. And, it's, and he said, look, mate, because he has a lot of animals in Brazil. He said, look, you know, I know how much animals mean. Just get sort yourself out and, you know, we'll, we'll rearrange it. And I was like, God, you're such a nice guy, aren't you? Is he still in Brazil? Then I think he is. Isn't he? he was the you know doing then you know and uh, yeah it was it was quite touching really I thought but someone said he's a massive Liverpool fan so when he was on tour if they if they lost he'd be like two days not talking. Devastated. Yeah yeah yeah. He was doing the rock and roll thing quite a lot when when obviously nineteen ninety he was in his prime you know and he was a proper rock star you know it's like I remember just sort of looking at God this guy's the real deal you know. <laughs> sunglasses during the day and you know didn't give a shit and, uh, <laughs> he had a he had like a bodyguard on tour with him it was like it, it, he was the real rock star you know uh, yeah. very nice, really 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 nice guy I spent spent a lot of time with him on that tour just kind of talking about music and 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 again was really encouraging you know i was like i was a kid and he was like totally totally like saying this you're doing what you're, what you're doing is good which is what i needed to hear Yes. Insecure teenager, you know. Well, absolutely. So how did you get on then with that kind of, well, both bringing the second album out, but also, you know, what I've sort of noticed as well with the fickle fan is that people move on quite quickly, as you kind of realise yourself. You know, in, in that period, you know, we'd had sort of the indie world, then we had that kind of rave world, then the Seattle grunge scene, everyone wanted to do that. And you were sort of, you were sort of straddling quite a weird time of music because Britpop hadn't quite happened and all those bands like, you know, the Divine Comedy and Pulp and then Oasis and Blur and, and you know, like, yeah. So what was it kind of like with your own sort of play on your own furrow at this stage? It was difficult, to be honest. I mean, when, when grunge hit, I, I, I remember, it just seemed like overnight everything in the... Um, or British and Irish was no longer cool, you know, and 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 enemy and sounds were just completely on this this kind of grunge tip, and I I really didn't like the music. I, I you know I loved the Nirvana, and I, and I, they're the only grunge band I ever liked. You know, I, I I don't even think they were grunge. You know, it was it was, it was something different. Uh, they were closer to punk and and. Um, and 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 in some ways like REM, you know, like they had this in the he had this independent thing, but the rest of it I just thought was terrible. Not not terrible, but just didn't identify with it at all. Um, but it just seemed like everybody was trying to, ourselves included, we were trying to get heavier because it felt like everybody was into heavier music, um, and it just I don't know. We got we got. Dave Megan to produce the second record because we toured with the House of Love after the mission. Um, I really liked the record that he'd made with the House of Love, the first Fontana album. Uh, we were big fans of that and they were pro promoting that album when we were touring with them. Um, 
And that's how we met their producer, Dave Megan, who was actually from Dublin as well, which we didn't know at the time. Um, so we did we did the second album with him. It, it, yeah, it, it, it fell on it fell in a very weird period of music, as you've just said. It seemed like we went from, you know, that 91 where you had all the classic albums. Like, I think Loveless came out that year, Scream Adelica and Nevermind. Yes. And it just felt it was the, the dawning of a really glorious time we were going to go on. Our, our path for music, and 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 it didn't. It, it it seemed like they went with the Nirvana thing more than anything, and and then suddenly it was like bands like I don't know Tad and you know. Well, there was people like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, all these blokes with the big hair and big kind of muscles with the you know cut off shorts, with a bottle of Jack Daniels singing about their you know problems with their stepfather and. Um, Yes. <laughs> because if you ever see clips of that now, 90s grunge bands, there is like, my God, you all bought the same, you all had the same hairdresser, the same fashion, and the Jack Daniels and the, you know, problems with your stepfather. And it was all a bit like, you know. I agree with that totally. Yeah, I just, I never, I was never into it. I, I don't know. It's one of the, I love Nirvana. One of the best gigs I've ever seen ever was Nirvana at Reading in 91 um, when Power Jones, we were supposed to play that day as well, but our, the tent got blown down. And in those days, it was the second stage. It collapsed because of the rain. And um, But Nirvana went ahead, went ahead and played and it was just fucking one of the best, still one of the best gigs I've ever seen. It was a, you know, it was a, a zeitgeist moment where, you know, everybody... I've never seen the, the Reading field so packed. You know, it, it rained all weekend. It was a horrible, horrible weekend. And they were headlining on the Sunday night. So they were the last band of the weekend. And it just, it was so rammed. Um, everyone stayed for Nirvana. And, and, it, and it, was, it, was, it was amazing. Um, but they were just, for me, ahead of, you know, you mentioned Pearl Jam. Like, not my cup of tea at all, or Soundgarden. Again, it's it's blokes with big raw hairy, you know, hairy hairy blokes singing about their stepdads. <laughs> um, so I didn't get it. And then and then when you know, kind of Britpop arrived, it was I was it, there was a sense of relief in a way. I, I, my first inkling of Britpop was I was still signing Polygram and Polydor, and the A and R guy played me. Um, now, our plugger played me a cassette copy of Modern Life is Rubbish on it in a taxi. I was in a, it was in a car journey to do some local press. And um, and I remember thinking, it's great. I was like, oh, wow. You know, because, I mean, we knew, we knew Blur and, you know, the first album had kind of not... Was it 1990, the first album, I think, or 91 for Blur or something like that? Yeah. But nobody really saw it coming with Blur, did they? I mean... The, there's no other way it was a good track and but suddenly they came out with this album and it was like wow this is really interesting guitar music again and the, you know the guitar sounds on that record were, were brilliant i mean i think that was you know grand coxon's finest moment was that was that album um in some ways because it was really it wasn't just grunge you know for, and a lot of the grunge stuff to me sounded like black sabbath Yes, Tony. I, I but it's interesting. Andy Cox is Andy. Co yeah, is he's now he's now become the Duran Duran guitarist, hasn't he? Oh, has he? Oh, wow. Oh, he's know. he's on the new album. All oh, right. Oh, yes, he has. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 
he's taken yeah, over wonder. Andy. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's a strange one, isn't it? It's I wonder what next. How do you know? Because I, I thought Alex James, the bass player, was big into Duran Duran, wasn't he? Even his bass sounded like John Taylor. Yes. Girls and girls and boys. So maybe maybe that was the connection. Um, so I was yeah I was in you know I, I think the it was like a second we we were out of we were out of sync then again with with, with Britpop you know um, it just didn't we were we we'd been around too long to be lumped in with that with that thing with that movement yes uh, but bizarrely uh, pulp managed to somehow squeeze themselves in there didn't they they did they did and after i think they had about five albums at that point didn't they i mean it was well it's funny because i did a, an interview with i think the bass player from the concert angels who's from sheffield and they said in the 80s you know you go to a party and think, oh god pulp are playing a game it's like yeah. oh god why don't they just give up you know god not yeah. we'll go in the other room pulp are playing you know oh, god. Yeah, because they were always on the bill, weren't they? They were always on the bill for everything. I remember. That. And they were on fire records during the eighties, and then they had that moment at Glastonbury where they took over the Stone Roses and Slot, and it was like, oh God, you know, the, some of the planets lined up, didn't they? Totally. And and I think they, yeah, because I, I remember the album before uh, the big one, which was what was the big one called? Um, There's his and something. It's and hers. Yeah. That was the, that was that the big no. There was the one after that. There was the really big one with sort of freeze and whiz on it, and the one that they headlined Glastonbury, where they they played all the songs off that. I remember hearing the album before that. So somebody at Fire Records was 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 on my radar, and I was hanging out with, and they were like, "You got to listen to this." I quite liked it, but it was it you know never in a million years would I have thought Pulp would have headlined Glastonbury. No, <laughs> it's, like, it's, in, it's interesting about timing because. Funny enough, Nirvana came to Norwich twice, once supporting Tad when there was only like 200 people in the audience, that was 89. And then the promoter thought, right, you know, I've heard, you know, never mind, I'll put them on at the waterfront with L L7 and Jacob's Mouse. And the album hadn't quite come out or had just come out. And he'd lost so much money. He never, you know, I think he virtually gave up his career as a promoter and he, he didn't even see the gig. He just went and sat by the river crying almost. And you think two months later, he could have moved it to a much bigger venue. But it's amazing that at Reading Festival, you know, they, they managed to do that. Whereas the Norwich Waterfront, they didn't even sell out. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, timing's everything in music, isn't it? Really, you know. Um, I remember, like, I think the Pulp album I think that's one of the best Britpop albums, actually. The one with all the big hits on. It's a, it's a really good album, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I don't know how he went from uh, singing kind of kitchen sing drama, weird indie stuff to suddenly just, you know, it seemed to come out of nowhere, you know? Um, this this jump this jump in, 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 in progress. Yes, because with most bands I've interviewed, you know, they have that five-year narrative. You know, they get together, they have that honeymoon period, they get the first single, John Peel plays it, they get the session with Dale Griffiths, who everyone loves. They don't, just the drummer loves him. Everyone else hate, mostly hates him. And then, then that first album, they do lots of touring, and then the second album, a bit tricky. Because you brought out like, virtually an album a year for, for the first half of the 90s. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, the, the material was never a problem for us. Like writing songs, I've, I've always been quite prolific. Um, my the, the biggest problem for me was like it just felt like the whole 
landscape kept changing, you know, uh, really quickly, you know, so we went to, you know, we were indie kids and, and that was all good. And then you had Baggy arrived and, and the Stone Roses and just, just before our first album came out um, and around that period, the Stone Roses album came out and that changed everything again. You know, it, it just, it just felt like these huge things were happening. And then obviously, grunge was the next thing but there wasn't that much of a space between i think you know the whole manchester scene was like what 89 to 92 and then it stopped um but it seemed a lot longer at the time you know because it was so much it was so dominant um but there was also at that point there was also the levelers had happened and then carter the unstoppable sex machine and then the orb and i remember that was kind of like another one where there was a a massive audience because i remember a Glastonbury where the Levellers headline and also the Orb were headlining at one stage and Carter, you know, and it was like, God, those bands have just, again, it was about timing, wasn't it? Totally, totally. Um, but we, we seem to like just get caught out by the, by the new thing every time. So like kind of Manchester caught us on the hop, grunge caught us on the hop, and then eventually Britpop another, was another one. Um, we were never part of any of them, and 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 in a sense, I'm glad we weren't because, uh, you know, I think that defines a lot of those bands. You know, like I, I watched the thing on on Britpop recently. Um, it's on Netflix, where it's I think it's called the Song or something, where they they do different genres of music, and there's a Britpop one on there, and um, and I think you know for bands like Echo Belly, uh, Sonia from Echo Belly's on there, where she's talking about. You know, she said they went from being like a small indie band to suddenly being embraced by the Britpop contingent. To you know, as soon as that happened, they were selling two thousand tickets a night. And she said, as soon as Britpop ended, they couldn't they couldn't fill fifty, they couldn't get fifty people outside of London. You know, yes. it, was, it was just over, absolutely over. Um, and music, I, th- I think the UK is really, you know. For me, the UK has always been important as a as a place to look to because because it does that. You know, it, it creates these scenes um, and it creates these new movements and new movements, and it's very fresh and and and, and they don't they don't let things get stale. Um, and uh, well, I suppose at that stage, especially the eighties as well. Yeah, and the, in the nineties, you know, you had the three weekly music papers, you had the John Peel show, and probably Steve Lamack, and also every little city and town, every city and town, you know, would have an alternative venue night, wouldn't they, where you could just go and virtually find yourself, you know, being on tour, you know, from from playing just random gigs, and you know, you can drive from Norwich to Leicester to Sheffield to Glasgow, you know, and and put all that together, and and it kind of moves quite quickly, doesn't it? Completely, completely. I mean, I still, I still think that, uh, like, the Germans still really look to England. You know, they, they, they still really high, um, hold England in, in very high regard, and, and the UK in, in terms of music, and, and you know, they, they, they really admire the UK. Um, so I think it's, yeah, that was, you know, we, 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 we love touring the UK. We did, we did a great following, you know, and uh, it's just. Um, by the fourth album, I think we'd kind of, the thing had kind of fizzled out for us as well, you know. But was this be, um, Become Yourself? Yeah, it was, it was a weird album. We kind of, there's, there's bits of it I really like, but, you know, we, we 
Britpop was in full swing by this point, so it was like 1990, or Britpop was just beginning to explode. Um, and we felt that we were again out of sync with what was trendy. And, and bearing in mind, we were, we were younger. Like, I mean, Noel Gallagher's like 10 years older than me, you know? So it felt weird that we were these kind of, we were kind of seeing this old fashioned, yet we were like, I'm a lot younger than Jarvis Cocker. And, you know, it, it was really weird to suddenly feel like you were the old kind of guard. Yes. When really, when really we weren't, you know? And, um, but that, that that album was the was the one where we like it was either it was either going to really work. We were trying to find the new sound and um, and I think we'd lost our way a bit, you know. I, I mean, for me personally, I'd I'd kind of forgotten why I was why I'd started doing music in the fourth place, you know. And, uh, so, did you record this one in Japan? It was released on a Japanese label. It was released by Polydor Japan, and they paid for it. But it was recorded in uh, Fulham, actually, in a studio called um, oh, fuck, what was the name of the studio? I can't remember. It was owned by a guy that worked for ABBA, and he'd made a lot of money from working with ABBA. Swedish guy, Marcus Studios. That was it. This guy Marcus was an engineer in uh, with, with with ABBA, and had moved to London and opened this like big studio. So we, we, we recorded it there. Um, and yeah, it was either going to be the making or the breaking of the band, basically. And, and we knew it, you know, we, we, we kind of knew it. Uh, and um, it didn't set the world on fire. No. So that was that. Was that. Did you uh, ever see that documentary? Is it Max Martin from Sweden? The, the Hit Machines? I haven't seen it. People have told me about it. I really want to see that, actually. It's supposed to be very good, isn't it? Because he was a rock, wasn't he? He was like a metal guy, um, yeah. as a lot of these pop pop guys tend to be. You know, they 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 were all like metal fans, and uh, but he was a big metal fan. And uh, but yeah, I mean, no, you can't you can't deny his ability to write big hits. Big hits, big hits. So when when you had the material for that fourth album, did you? I think it was your fourth, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, did did um did you feel quite confident, or was there a sort of a trepidation in the air? And it was trepidation, to be honest. I mean, because as I said, like the landscape kept changing so quickly that we were trying to second guess what what, what was going to be was going to work, and and you're in trouble when you're doing that. Um, whereas you know, in the past, we didn't think about stuff like that. But when you've been in the industry a while, and you've been around people that are, you know, they're motivated more by the business side of it. It, it, it can help. You, you, should, you know, you start talking lingo that, you know, you, looking back, you think, you know, midweek chart positions and bullshit like that suddenly becomes part of your daily, you know, chat. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, I, I, I didn't, didn't care. It was like, like for me, I just love, I love writing songs. And yes. Well, it's interesting because there was quite a few bands from that indie world who were on those labels. There was the Railway Children and the Red Guitars, who I both remember talking to. And they, it was when they both went to a, a major label, they both, they just had a meeting in the pub and said, actually, you know, I just don't care about this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes product. It becomes, it becomes, you, you become a product. Yes. You know? I, remember, I mean, the weirdest thing is that, like, um, because I was talking to a young artist about this, he's working with the moment about how strange it is to suddenly become 
your name to be kind of spoken about as somebody else, you know, as another entity, which completely fucked my head up. It was like, you know, suddenly I was Craig from Power of Dreams, you know, as opposed to just me. And uh, and that that's that's that kind of stuff is very weird to deal with, you know, it's on on a on a head level. Yes, particularly when you're a teenager, you know, and you're so insecure anyway. Uh, you've got hormones flying around, and you, and you don't know who the fuck you are, really. Um, well, I think that last album was kind of the nail in the coffin for the band at that point. You know, um, I'd moved to London. I, I, I was living in London, and so was the guitar player, and we had been for a couple of years. Um, and we tried to convince the bass player and drummer. And in those days, it was really difficult to operate without living in the same city, let alone the same country. The, uh, the bass player and drummer were still living in, in Dublin, and they they refused. They didn't want to live in London. Um, and in those days, it was just impossible to keep a band going. You could send, you know, you'd have to wait. You know, you can you imagine sending tapes to each other, which is what we were doing. We were posting ideas to each other, but that took forever you know yes absolutely so did you have a moment where you sat down and just said this is the end um it kind of just we did we did some touring for that album and we went out to japan a couple of times and, and that album did quite okay in japan and we were sat this is another one of these spinal tap moments we were in tokyo the last time we, we toured tokyo and uh our then our manager at the time uh, had told us that we were, Sony had come in, Sony Japan had got in touch while we were there and said, we want to sign the band and we're going to, we're going to, we want the band to be a priority act. And so our manager was like, yeah, fantastic, let's do it. Um, the, an hour before we, so we, we, we were over there on tour and then we'd arranged to, to go into Sony and we'd been told by our manager that the contract was up with Polydor, that we were free to we were free agents after this record. An hour before we go to the meeting with Sony, the manager comes down and he said, Guys, I'm really, really sorry. I didn't read the contract properly. You're actually, you know, you're still signed to Polydor here and we can't do the deal with Sony. And that was it. That was the moment. It was like you know, <coughs> Can't take any more. <laughs> oh my God, yes, that was that was too much. But I remember doing an interview with Steve Mack from that Petrol Emotion, and that was like one of those bands that every time there was a break, something happened, you know, like, hey, we've got this really great guy who's gonna, he's gonna be our main man at the record label. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry, but Paul McCartney wants me to work for him now. And I really can't say no to Paul McCartney. So I'm gonna leave you in the capable hands of someone. No, I'm not actually, they don't care about you. So it was like this whole sort of thing where they just got to that point where they went, actually no one, you know. And I kind of thought, yeah, but I saw you live. You were just an amazing band, you know? And it's like, it's like, no, it just, we missed every, every moment. It just didn't work for us. And it was like, oh, well, never mind. They were like, they were number 42, I think about four or five times, weren't they? They were just outside the top 40. You know, and Big Decision was one of the great songs of the 80s. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, again, John John O'Neill was 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 writing that stuff. I, I, I love Manic Pop Trill, it's a great album. Uh, and the one with Can't Stop, is that the first album? It's such a great song that, I, you know, it's a, for me, it's a classic, classic tune. Yes. As good as anything he did in, in the undertones, easily, you know, but I had that velvet kind of guitar sound and yeah, great band. Again, I don't know how they didn't become huge or even 
you know, not huge, but like a medium-sized band, you know, they just it just never really happened. No. But you know, it's it's that's the way the industry works. As somebody said to me, um, a polygram um, around or no, it was uh, yeah, in Polydor said, you know, the difference between the Power Dreams first album and the Cranberries first album was Linger was a hit in America, you know. We were playing bigger crowds than the Cranberries were before that became a hit. You know, we had a bigger fan base than them. Um, and, it, you know, you would have put your money on us, but they Linger came along and, and that changed. One song can change everything for us. Yes. And on a completely need... different front, it was kind of Robbie Williams, wasn't it? I think his, uh, his, his album came out and they kept releasing singles from it. And it was like, God, this is terrible. One more and then that's it, you know. But I'm sure this is not going to work. And it was Angels. And then he had that Glastonbury spot and it was like, okay, right, let's, let's you know, let's clear the diary. We, we, we've got a, yourself a, you know, a hit machine here, haven't we? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's even even when you when you when you I'm sure you've interviewed plenty of people that you know successful people who will say there was one thing that went right or there was one piece of luck or it was one guy at the record label that was so into it. Yes. Um, and then the opposite side of that is the story as you said, like Steve Mack was saying, it's, that happened to us. The, the guy that we signed, we signed when we signed the Polydor, the guy that signed us, uh, a guy called Greg Carpenter. A week after we signed, or a couple of weeks after we signed, he was he was promoted to head of A and R, which meant he was no longer dealing with us on a daily basis, and he was the one who signed us. So that was the beginning. He was still kind of involved, but you know, it wasn't the same, and it wasn't what we'd signed up for. Um, so we suddenly had a new A and R guy immediately, and we didn't know whether the guy ever liked us. And, you know, it's debatable. Um, and that, so that that was one, and then the second one was. The head, the guy that, that like, because we were we were getting a really really big push in America from Polygram. They were really into the first record, and again, the guy that was really pushing it for us in America, uh, he got he left. He went to Warner's just before the album came out, so there was nobody there uh, to be really pushing pushing the record. So these these kind of things can really make or break careers, you know. Yes. So it can just literally be down to one piece of luck or one guy, you know. It's that old adage of like you only back in the back in the early late eighties, early nineties. Uh, all the kind of bosses of labels would tell tell me, you know, you only need one one or two people maximum in a, in a label to really like you for that to completely spread throughout the company, and then suddenly the whole company can is you know will get behind it. But you need those two people. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's just another release. Um, yes. God, that's... So, yeah. so then, of... And then what happened after that? Did you form Pharmacy almost straight away? I took a break for about 18 months and didn't... I don't think I even listened to music for that period. I was just, like, I was living... I was I was in love. I was in, living in London with my girlfriend and in, his, in a shared student house in New Cross. And uh, and I loved it. I, I, I lived the student life without actually being a student and uh, started getting, you know, yeah, for, didn't pick up a guitar, had no no idea what I was going to do. And then I started going to gigs again. And, you know, it's like the mafia. Once you're in, you can't get out, you know. Yes. Um, and I ended up um, going to, I think I started writing with the guitar with Ian. Me and Ian started meeting up again. 
and I and I and he was living in West Norwood. I was living in Peckham. Was it Peckham? I don't know, New Cross Road. Um, and we spent we started writing songs again, and uh, and then and then we decided to let's let's put a band together. And he suggested Morty from it was a friend of ours, the drummer from Sultans of Ping, right? Who was living in London at the time, and and it was he was a mate, which made it you know really it was fun. Uh, it was good to be in a band with a friend and 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 we started rehearsing and, and within 18 months we got offered a really great deal with a, a label called Red Ant Records in America and um, and they were it was set up by a guy called Randy Phillips who um, later became very famous as the man that was doing all the interviews when Michael Jackson died he was the head of Live Nation this is after pharmacy yes so it all looked fantastic. You know, we had an album ready to go. Um, we had a really good manager who now manages a band called The Villagers. I don't know whether you are aware of The Villagers. Oh, Irish. yes. Pretty good band. And uh, so we, the night that we signed, so we'd spent 18 months touring up and down the UK, getting this album together. And we signed a deal with, with, with this, this label, Red Ant, which was a subs- subsidiary of uh, A&M in the States. So they had money. But the night that we signed in the Hard Rock Cafe in London, we got a phone call, or the, the boss of the UK label took a phone call, came back to the table and said, I've got really bad news. Um, Randy's just called me and the label's gone into, into receivership. <laughs> um, and that was the night that we signed. So that was a kick in the teeth. And we spent eight, Darren being a good manager, managed to get eight, he managed to get three quarters of the advance out of them because some of the guys had given up jobs and stuff to, to, to go full time. Um, he got some money out of, he got the money out of, and we rehearsed this album for about six months, hoping that the situation in America would be resolved and that there was talk of somebody who was going to come in and save the company. Basically, Randy had signed. Uh, Tony Braxton, do you remember Tony Braxton? He had signed yes. her to, she was huge and he signed her. It was so successful. It was one of the biggest debuts in, uh, in American history at that time. Uh, as a result, they said uh, to Randy, go set up your own subsidiary label, which is what he did, which is what we were signed to. Um, but Tony Braxton's second album was the biggest flop in US history up till that point. Oh. And all the money went on that. I think it was like he lost three million, cost a million to record it, two million on promo, and none of it worked. It was a total flop. Um, and as a result, we we ended up kind of being caught in the middle of that. But so yeah, we we had a really good album. That that's the annoying thing. But you know, we were in limbo, and there was no after that. I think we all just went right. You know what? Can't do this anymore. You know, can't I can't build, I don't have the fucking um, the, the, the what's that Bowie song? We don't have the power anymore. It felt like that, you know. It's like I just don't have the power to do this. Yes. And and as luck would have it, about a few weeks later, I was just reading through the enemy, and, and I just saw this ad, and it was like vocals wanted, South London band uh, influences, Velvet Underground, uh, Pink Floyd. The doors and somebody else and i was like that sounds interesting first that i ever answered ever and uh, and that was archive and i ended up joining archive then and doing three albums with them over the following three or four years five years 
um, and that was great. And I, I you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was completely different kind of music to the music that I'd made up until that point. Long, progressive, 16 minute songs and spending crazy amount of time in the studio. Um, so that was great. Uh, but at that point, before that, I, I think if, if I hadn't have read that article, I, I mean, I've, I would have made music, of course. I think I, I don't have a choice whether I do that because it's just something I have to do. Um, but it saved me from turning into a bitter, bitter old man, you know, bitter, bitter person in my thirties. I was because it was all set up. I was, I was so sick of the music industry at that point. You know, it just yes. felt like it, like. I mean, I loved, always loved music, loved making records, music industry. At that point, I just detested it. It was like, it just felt like it was, um, everything was conspiring against me. And, uh, well, Archive was great. I, you know, I had a great time, great time recording and, 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 and really, um, you know, they'd already done two albums with Island Records when I joined. And uh, so they'd been through the mill as well. They'd, they'd actually had two record deals, one with Island, and then they were signed to um, whatever Travis's label was. Uh, was that Food? Was it? Or, I can't remember. Yes. Go, Go Discs. Go Discs, I think it was, yeah. All right. um, so they, 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 they'd had problems as well. And... Um, you know, their out two albums hadn't really worked. They had female singers in, and they and and Darius, the main guy. I met him at a time when we were both sick of the music industry, but we just said let's let's give this a go, and um, and and it was great. We, we we I'm really proud of the work I did with Archive. Two two albums in particular, you all look the same to me, and Noise. I really Noise and Noise is probably my favorite. It's a really it's a really strong record. Um, and I and, and I really loved loved the creative side of that that, that project it was great. Um, and then and you know I was I did a lot of touring with them, and uh, that kind of reintroduced me to to playing live, you know, to like decent crowds, and so yeah, and it was good. It was good for my confidence. Yes, and then you you sort of went straight into being a solo artist at this stage. Yes, I did a solo record. I did it in Iceland with a Icelandic producer called Barty Johansson. Uh, and this was this was like 2008, um, before Iceland was kind of there was hardly any tourists there. It was it really was kind of remote and like not many people around, and um, and that was great. That was very pop. It was a very pop record. I, I was quite influenced by the by the producer. And at one point it was going to be a, you know, it wasn't going to be a solo album because I felt like we were, we were, it was such a, it was such a uh, collaboration. Um, but he, he was insistent. He was like, no, it's a solo record. Put it out as a solo record. I quite like it. It's, there's some good stuff on it. Um, I'd probably record it differently now, but you know, yeah, that was, that was, that was good. It was a good period. Um, and then after that, I did an album for, I started, I did quite a bit of work for, so like, uh, yeah, like my, I worked with Michael Nyman on some stuff and uh, Nathaniel Meckley, who's a, a composer. And I, I ended up doing that for a while because Archive were very popular in France. Yeah. So, 
spent a lot of time in France working with French artists and, and, and writing with them. And then I, and I was signed to a French publisher and then I met this guy who was signed to the publishing company, a guy called Thierry Fournier. We were on some songwriting camp together and we, we really hit it off. And you know, the, the camp was shit, but we met each other. And uh, and we were like, let's 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 do something, and 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 we put a project together called Mineral, um, and we released an album in 2013, 2014 on on Alan McGee's label. Oh, his new label, Three Five Nine Music, and uh, and that was electronica. It's it's it, I I love the album. I I think it's a really good record. Um, it's got better. I, I listened to it quite recently, having not listened to it for a long time. And I was very pleasantly surprised that it was still sounding pretty good. And, Excellent. Uh, um, and that was, a, that was a good one. Um, and then 2014, I, I wrote a song. I oh know in 2012, I wrote a song with uh, an Australian singer called Phoebe Kildare and uh, for her album. She was signed to a French label as well. Uh, and that went out in 2010, I think it was first released, on her record uh, under the name Phoebe Kildare and the Short Straws. The song was called Fade Outlines, the Fade Outline. Um, didn't do a great deal. It was on the album. It did all right. It got on a couple of soundtracks in France. Uh, on, it got into a, a Luc Besson movie. So it was okay. It did, it did okay. And then in 2014, this guy, this French, I got a call saying this French DJ remixed it and that it was looking like it was going to go straight into the German charts at number one, which it did. Blimey. <laughs> On the week of release. Um, he basically just sped up the original track and <laughs> put, a, put a beat behind it. But it worked, you know, he worked. It really worked. And that became a monster hit. It was, it was like number one all over the world. Uh, so when those moments happen, do you suddenly get some sort of, oh, thank God for that, the financial bank, bank balance is looking better, or does it not work like that in the world of music? Oh, for sure it does, yeah. I mean, any, anyone who says, who says different is lying. It, it, it was just like, oh, I can breathe for a bit, you know, or I can stop stressing about money. Um, the, you know, all, all artists that are, you know, unless you're massively successful, it's um, it's a constant kind of, you know, how, you know, there's no security, there's no job security being a songwriter. You know, you don't know, you know, you don't know what the year ahead sometimes lies, looks like, you know, and, and that, that that's quite terrifying. Um, so when something like that comes along, it gives you breathing space, which is which is really nice. And you know, as a, as a songwriter, it was interesting. I, I did this interview with the guy who was in the Bluebells from oh, yeah, yeah. from Scotland. Young at Heart, wasn't it? Young but, at Heart. Yes, he did that one, Young at Heart, which was quite interesting. And he he kind of gets asked to song, you know, write songs for people and saying, "Look, could you come and see us?" And he, and he explained that you know he would just keep putting it off and putting it off until he was literally you know he'd think oh I'll record it you know I'll write some the night before and then he'd go oh no I'll write some when I go to the airport no I'll write some when I'm in the airport when I'm on the flight oh and then it's like oh my god literally I'm now going to be going into the studio and they'll want that song do you do you work under pressure or do you can you just find find it without having those deadlines. Um. I, I much prefer to meet the artist before even trying anything, to be honest. 
you know that, that, that to me is more important I, I've done the pitching thing and, and, and in Berlin there's a lot of that goes on you know there's a lot of studios in Berlin there's a lot of producers um, and there's a lot of kind of you know people getting together uh, just to see what happens and you know but I prefer to work with artists I like you know even, even if they they have it's because yeah for me that's always the better like that that track fade out lines I wrote that in a hotel room in Paris with, with with Phoebe you know the hotel I was staying in she came down and I I brought my guitar over and 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 we were writing in the hotel room and we wrote it within 20 minutes but I think it's because we met and there was a connection and you know we we hit it off and we we talked about music for you know the first 20 minutes and that that's that to me is super super important you know um some people could just sit down and write songs and and and, and do it like boom 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 um i could do it i could i could force myself but to just write a song without any kind of plot or knowing who who's going to be playing it or singing mm. it um is 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 quite tricky you know it's um i think i think most writers will admit that a lot of the stuff that they end up bringing to other people, they might have written for somebody else. Right. It's on the computer, and nobody likes to go into a session empty-handed, you know, because, as you said, what you described is exactly what it can be like, where, you know, you know the band are fucking sitting there waiting for you to come up with something. <laughs> and, and you could be totally wrong, you know, it's, it's, it's a shot in the dark. So I, these days, I much prefer to just even, even meet the people, you know, yeah. or, or sit with sit with somebody for for an hour just to get to know them. And and when I do work with other artists now, it's like you know the first half of the the most important part for me is the actual talking and get getting getting to know them and you know asking them about their life and what they're into and 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 usually within that conversation, it's where the idea for the song will come. You know, there'll be something that they say. It might be a, it might be a phrase they use or. Or, or a word that they use a couple of times and you go, that's, that's, that's something for a song. And then the ball's rolling. And, um, but I think it's, I think it's super important that artists are involved in the, you know, in their music. As yeah. Much as I mean, before that period, you, the, the band reformed again, didn't it? Sort of in the, oh, was it the end of 2000, 2009? What was it like sort of getting, getting back together again? It was really fun, you know. We we hadn't really seen much of each other. I mean, Keith was living in America, Arizona. By that point, he'd been there for like twenty years or ten years. Uh, the bass player was in Dublin, and Ian was in in London. I was in London still at that point, or I just moved back to Dublin. Um, well, I be, I moved back to Dublin two thousand and seven. Um, it was really nice, you know. It was like I remember our last gig in Dublin in 1995 and it was in a place called the rock garden in in temple bar and there was a few there was it was quite healthy audience um but i remember i was thinking about this just the other day i remember like you know playing our last song and and i knew it was the last song we were going to do and you know and i remember like welling up and it, it was it wasn't because I, I wasn't welling up because i was sad we weren't going to play together anymore I was really welling up at like the indifference to where we'd ended up. Right. Where we'd gone through this 
incredible highs, you know, from 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 very young to suddenly being on stage in, in Rock Garden and the most sad person in the room about it was me, <laughs> or or it appeared to be, um, and that, that was that was an emotional night. But so it was nice to it was nice to get back together and 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 just revisit that album. Like we 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 went on tour and we played the we played it was the twentieth anniversary of of the first album. And it was it was really nice to reconnect, um, and we we did some dates and and that that was all really cool, um, you know, it was it I think twenty years is long enough for you to be able to put aside any kind of problems that you might have had or yes absolutely, and it's long enough to look at your own work in a non uh, critical way you know where you can be a lot kinder to yourself to your to your younger self. And then I think as you get, you know, as it gets to 30 years, you're becoming a lot more kind to yourself um, because you start to think, fuck, I was a kid. And um, so, no, it was, it was really nice. It was really lovely to go out and play those gigs again. And it was great. Like in the, the difference between that last gig that we did in, in 95, you know, where I was, I was the only one upset. Um, so playing, we played two nights in Dublin for the, for the reunion and it was fantastic. It was a real celebration and, as as friends as people have told me, it was better than a school reunion, you know, because a lot of our a lot of our friends came together that night, and some who aren't around anymore. But it was just a great, you know, we did we did two nights and they were fantastic, and it was really, you know, um, we could we could celebrate we could celebrate the band, and and there was a lot of love for the band built up at that point, you know, we hadn't we hadn't gone out and tried to flog it to death, we hadn't done any of that. And it was, you know, we literally hadn't played together for for um, fifteen years at that point. Mm. So, so when did you was, when did you start having the idea to to write another al- album? It's always been in the back of my mind, to be honest. You know, um, I've often thought about it, and there was a couple of times where it all, you know, I I, I contacted the guys over the years with the idea, and I'd be like come on let's do it and it never worked out like it never you know it just seemed an insurmountable task to to pull that off to get everyone in the same place at the same time um so it's it's always been something in the back of my mind i was i was always disappointed that that fourth album was our last album that for me was like probably the weakest of the four that we did um i really wanted it to be not that as the last album. So that was the main driving uh, motivation for me. So when, when lockdown kicked in, now some of these songs, I, I as I was saying earlier, people, songwriters will, will have songs that they end up bringing in that they've written for somebody else. I, some of those, some of that was the case with, the, with, with a couple of the tracks on the pod album. I had, I had intended to give them away, but kept them. Yeah. Uh, because I thought this this would be such a great pod song, you know. They had Keith's drums on this and Ian's guitar, it would be killer. Um, so a couple of them, I, I I kept. When lockdown happened, I was um, it was March. It was just before Patrick's Day, and I was working on this. I've got this new project with a Canadian guy, and it's called Craig Walker on the Cold. And um, we were working on our our debut album, which was we we're about halfway through it. And then COVID hit, we couldn't be in the studio anymore together. So we said, okay, off home. Um, 
And after a week, I called him up and I said, I'm really bored. (laughs) (laughs) I really need to do something. And he said, yeah, me too. And I said, how about we do something to honour the upcoming, because that was 2019. So Immigrants was the first album's anniversary was happening in 2010, sorry, 2020. I said, maybe we should do something for that. He was like, yeah, great, do it. Let's do it. I said, what should, how should we honour it? The initial idea was to do an acoustic EP of the track, some of the tracks updated and, and recorded today. So that was the initial idea. And then I started looking through like what, what I had, uh, the songs that I'd put to one side. I sent a couple of them to the producer, Eric, and he went, these are great. Like, let's, you know, let's do an EP of new songs, which then eventually became an, an album. Um, and, and basically everybody just said yes. I called, you know, got contacted. Once the producer was on board, I knew it was possible from a, a technical point of view, you know, because he was capable of, of taking all the material in and, yeah. and making it work. So that side was sorted, uh, and then and then the two guys in the band were really really up for it. They said, "Yeah, we're all in lockdown. Let's do it." Um, and then the final piece was Ali Ali Staten, who had actually he was he mixed the album and he had, and he added a lot of like kind of really nice bits to it later on. Uh, Ali had engineered our last album. He'd been the assistant engineer on the album that we did, Become Yourself. Uh, I was like, he was a young guy cutting his teeth at that point. Um, and we remained friends over the years. And Ali's gone on to have an amazing career. He's worked with like, you know, U2, Snow Patrol, all these like Turing breaks, actually. He did all the Turing breaks music. Yes, they were very, and, and also Madonna and Seal, didn't he? Yes, yes, he did. So he, you know, Ali, Ali said yes, and that was a big thing. It was like, wow, like Ali's on board, you know. And so we had a, everyone was up for it. So I, I, I just recorded the songs at home to a click, uh, in this very room I'm sitting in now, um, to acoustic guitar. I send it to the producer, who then created something for the guys to play to. I mean, no, we'd never done this. It was really like, you know, I'd, I'd never recorded my vocals at home ever. That ended up on a record, for instance. You know, I have, I have the right equipment, but I, yeah. I'd never do it because it was always demos. It's just a demo and I'll, I'll record the proper thing when we go into the proper studio. Um, and so that, that it, was, it, was a, it was a new, new experience for, for all of us, really. You know, like, and, and really turned out to be a really beautiful beautiful experience you know as soon as we as soon as we finished two songs Ali mixed them he sent them back to us and I just remember thinking fuck it's gonna work we still sound like a band thankfully um and the producer Eric uh who is like 10 years 12 years younger than the than us he'd never heard the band he'd never heard of Power Dreams until I asked him to do the record you know he knew he'd heard I'd mentioned the band but never never played it to him and he, he went away, being a producer, and listened to the back catalogue. And he said, um, he came back to me and he said, he said, of that first album, if, if, if I'd been sent that by somebody and told it was some new band in New York, I would have believed it. And I was like, all oh, right. So he then said, it's a great band. I'm a fan of the band's past. Uh, he said, I could throw loads of stuff on this. You know, I could layer it, could put keyboards on it, we could put strings and... We could make it more modern. We could do blah, blah, blah. And he said, but I don't think we should do that. I think the band is, um, the elements are really strong. You should stick to that. Um, And he, because when he started getting, you know, what he got, 
had my vocals and then Keith added his sent him his drums and Ian sent his guitars. He said it just sounded, he said when I put it together, it just sounded like a band. And um, and he was the one, funnily enough, who was like, keep it as as close to what you started the band out as as possible, which is bass, guitar, drums, vocals. Yes, when you when you were all playing live in the same space. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was tricky though. I mean, from 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 his point of view, which is, you know, when you take disparate parts that are being, you know, when nobody's played together, so the, the guitar player is playing to his, you know, he's, play, he's singing along to what I'm I'm singing on there, and, and I'm playing to a click. There's a click on there, but he's not playing with the drummer, and he's not playing with the bass player, and it's so, you know, the drummer and the bass player usually play together. Even if it doesn't end up on the record, they'll be in the room together. Yes. Kind of disintuitiveness. Um, so that was that was a bit tricky to navigate. You had to do quite a bit of editing to make it sound like we were not in different countries. <laughs> <laughs> but but as he said, I mean, it's you know, there's there's something about bands, isn't there? And you put you put you put you put the three four elements together. Uh, it's still there. You know, like it's the, the the essence of what the band's about was still there, which is which is pretty amazing, you know. And uh, and it made it, it made making the record really, you know, a real pleasure. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I know it's kind of a long way off, but do you have plans of either having any more live dates or any more future projects with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we're gonna we we recorded more more songs than we needed for the album. Uh, it was going to be a double at one point, but we thought you can't come back with a double album. Like, we're not the Smashing Pumpkins. No. Uh, and, oh, yes. And, yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we we definitely will. So we've got we've got some stuff that we're going to finish. Ali's going to mix some of the tracks that we didn't that didn't make the record. He's away at the moment, but he's com- he's coming back soon. Uh, he's on tour with Snow Patrol in the states at the moment. Lucky Booger. Um, and so yeah, there's more to come. There's more to come. I don't. I don't know where it'll go. I mean, I'm. You know, I've got. I'm, I'm doing loads of other stuff, and but it's my baby, the band. You know, I. I, I feel quite. I'm, I'm really, really pleased that the fourth album is not the last album. Now, if we don't ever do anything else for that reason alone, I'm. I'm happy that it's the first album and the fifth album, and I love both albums. Yes. You know, it's it's, it's a nice book ending thing going on there that I feel. You know, if that's this one song, I I, I can die happy with that. Well, oh, that sounds yeah, it does sound like there's a lot of. Um, did the other members of the band have the same kind of process as you did with this? Pretty much. I mean, Ian Ian was in London, and uh, you know, it was great. He was you know he was getting the tracks as they as they filtered through. Um, so I send it to the producer. The producer would do a mock up. For, for a separate mock-up for Ian because he wanted different things on his thing to play to to Keats. Um so they were they were they were operating on that on that that side but Ian, Ian called me up and, and he said you know what I'm having so much fun I'm sat in in my little studio here in South London and I'm and I'm really loving I, you know there's nobody around for a few days and his girlfriend had gone away and, and I'm just immersing myself in this record and it's so much fun, and uh, and I said, yeah, it's the same for me doing the vocals. I had so much fun doing the record, you know. It was it wasn't like a normal record, but it you know, 
I quite enjoy like uh, going back to the vocal thing. It was really interesting to to do the vocals at home because I, I probably I might I might continue doing it this way because I'd never been in control of the, the recording session of a vocal. You know, it, you're always you're always handing that power over to somebody, and um, I could. What I really liked was I could record a vocal, leave it, and come back and listen to it. Whereas if you're in the studio, it's like you know the producer's on a clock. The studio, you know, is, is on a clock as well. So you've got to get it. It's like, you know, you never get that chance to go back and fix it. Yeah. This way I could. I could choose what I was sending the producer. And uh, and that was that was really interesting. Um, the, but the best thing is that it's possible to do it this way, really. You know, that, that, that to me is amazing. Well, isn't, it is kind of interesting on that level of what's happened in the last 18 months, because I think there's some things that we just, you know, we will go back to some things, but some things we will just do differently in future because you just think, actually, just just not very important. And, and, you know, considering you're in Berlin, someone's in London, someone's in America, you just think, well, we either do nothing or we do this, but it's better to do this than nothing, really. So, um, Absolutely. I, yeah, I think... I think that's one of the big positive things that's come out of this. And I know I'm not alone in, in, in thinking that as well. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was unnecessary, you know, like this, this, this obsession with meetings that we've, we've all been obsessed with, you know, meetings for before you do the work and yeah. meetings. And it's like, you know, most of it's just not, it's, it's not needed, you know? No, but yeah. well, also, especially not needed, go into a, you know getting on the train traveling an hour or two to a meeting you think well let's just do it on zoom and we can have a quick chat and i don't even need to be out of my pajamas and i'm not going to feel completely exhausted by the end of this whole process you know we'll just do it for half an hour but it's fine you know and actually that traveling aspect is kind of exhausting actually it's the completely, completely. And, and and i i i think it's uh like from a songwriting point of view, I've done quite a lot of writing on Zoom as well, which uh, was tricky at first, but you find your way, you know, it's like, you know, I, I remember in the days of, you know, the only way I could record music was with two, two, two separate of those small cassette recorders, you know, and I would, I would find a way to create demos before I even had a four time. Um, so, you know, for creative people, They'll always find a way, you know. Having said that, if this, if the pandemic had happened ten years ago, this album wouldn't wouldn't exist. No, no, you know, it 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 it, it just luckily it, the timing was right. You know, uh, technology had got to the to the point where, you know, you can send really large files quite quickly. Um, it doesn't take three days to send a, a, a large file like it did ten years ago. But is it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I can't remember his surname, but a guy called Jeffrey, he was in a band called Jellyfish in the early 90s in America. And he's kind of continued, you know, well, I did an interview with him and he said, oh, yeah, I've just been, um, I've been doing some guitar parts for the next Sinead O'Connell album. And I thought, yeah, you know, and then he'd work with, I think, toured with Primal Scream and, and again, you know, could just kind of send, you know, he's in LA and you could just do your bit and then just send it and they'll have it, you know, he, it's an eight-hour difference, but generally, you know, that's there. You've done it. Exactly. Whereas in the past, it would, you know, before this, he would have had to fly over, you know, have the meeting for us. <laughs> you know, all this bullshit. So it's kind of, 
and and all that stuff's not good for the environment either isn't it you know like people on planes all the time for stupid stupid reasons um, yes you know and just like it doesn't make any difference um so i think moving forward uh i, th I think it's definitely had a, had a huge influence on music what's happened I don't think um, I don't think it's going to go back to the way that it was. And and if if it's possible, uh, you know why why shouldn't people do albums this way? You know if it as you said if it means it not happening or this way, surely it's. I mean even Morrissey and Mark could do an album this way. Never <laughs> have to meet ever again. They'll never have to meet. I know that'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? I mean just yeah. like. I mean, if you could have said something to a, an 18-year-old self or 16-year-old self in your case, I mean, is there any kind of advice you'd have wanted to whisper in their ear that you'd have thought, yeah, that would have been handy? Uh, I would say listen to other people more. Don't, don't dismiss other people's opinions so quickly. Or, and don't be kind of too, um, what's the word, too protective of, of what you're doing, like collaborate. You know, I think I think the, the the sooner you realize that collaboration is really a massive part of all those people that you loved, uh, you know, all the artists that you loved, they were very very good at collaborating. You know, all the yes. And, even uh, and even David Bowie was always very good. He always knew he needed to get somebody his sidekick. You know, his kind of as he said, his Jeff Beck. So he got Mick Ronson, and then he worked with Carlos Alomar, Tony Visconti. You know, he always had an amazing, even that last album, he had uh, Donny, I can't remember his name, the jazz band that he found in New York. So he kind of got them and said, right, actually, I could do a jazz album here. Actually, there's a great band down the road and, and they'll be into doing it. So, you know, it's interesting that. Yeah, he was, he was the king of that. And I mean, if you, like somebody, a friend of mine was, was a musician friend of mine was saying that if you look at Bowie's career, um, when he finished, when he stopped working with Mick Ronson, it's when his songs, uh, they were never as complex again, like chord wise, you know, like uh, the, 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 the stuff on Ziggy is really, you know, quite, what's the word? Very heavy on chords, you know, it, it was very musical. Yes. Extremely, extremely high level, high level musicality. Um, and that's obviously Ronson, Ronson's influence, you know. Um, but Bowie, yeah, the master of picking the right people to work with, or finding, or getting the best out of the collaborations that he, you know, his his, his collaboration with Eno, of course, was amazing. Um, Iggy, another one that he that he really collaborated brilliantly with. Um, but as you said, always had great great people around him. And, and Madonna, Maradona, uh, Maradona, Madonna is another person. I mean, like love or loud her. I'm, I'm a fan of Madonna, particularly the eighties Madonna. I thought she was really. Well, popular. I really loved the album she did with William Orbit. That was ray of light, great album. Yeah, again, another person really, really always knew who to work with at the right time. You know? Yes. And uh, she, she, Madonna's real uh, talent was she. She found the people just before they became huge. You know. And she had that knack, uh, but that—that's what I tell myself: be open to collaboration. Don't be afraid to work with other people. Don't be, you know, because you know, that's where the real magic is. You know? Yes, when people come together; they create something that's totally, totally unique um, that you're never going to be able to do by yourself. Um, I know you, you just what's. I know some of Paul McCartney's solo albums were strange, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh yes, oh yes. I'll, uh, I'm kind of there's a, there's a bit of a reevaluation going on at the moment with McCartney solo stuff, isn't there? I maybe it's just <laughs> podcasts that I listen to. I listen to quite a few Beatles podcasts. Well, I love Band on the Run, but I have to say some of them just became rather. It's just really, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. I agree. Like, uh, what was give, my, give my regards to Broadway. He wrote this album. Oh. Yeah, now the plot was lost around that point, wasn't it? Maybe. Yeah. Well, he, he, some of the later stuff was good. He did an album with Nigel Godrich, which I only really he did in the it would have been in the early two thousands or, or or just after OK Computer that period. Um, Nigel Godrich got him to play everything on the album, so it's McCartney on everything. And it's really good. Like I was like, wow, it's a fucking good album. Yes. Uh, I listened to a podcast called I Am the Egg Pod. If you're a if you're a Beatles fan, it's excellent. Um guy called Chris Shaw. Uh, he's a musician, the guy that presents it, but it's a very, very, very good podcast. He has some it's it's really insightful and he loves the Beatles and knows he knows like Ringo B sides, you know, he's that kind of guy. <laughs> And um, nobody's ever caught him now. You know, he's had he's had guests on there, but he gets he gets really good guests, and they go through albums. P, uh, guests will choose their favorite album, Beatles album, and it's like really nerdy. My my wife is always going, "God, you just love listening to old blokes talking about old music, don't you?" <laughs> I, yeah, I do. <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's very tempting. Yes, indeed. Okay, we're going to finish it there because then after that we waffle even more. So congratulations if you got that far. Um, I'm sure some of you have. Anyway, a massive thank you to Craig uh, Walker and um, from The Power of Dreams. This has been David East or The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, make it nice, otherwise don't bother. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. You will find me. And also, all these interviews have been archived. And if you're really excited, uh, and you should be really, if you're into 80s indie pop especially, and a bit of David Bowie, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Just do, again, C86 show, and that's it just comes up. And you go, wow, that's amazing. Does this person have a life? No, I don't. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>